we doing this? Really? Wait for it. Are we doing this? Wait for it. Ow! What the fuck? WTF. And it's also, eh, what the fuck? What's wrong with me? It's time for WTF. What the fuck? With Mark Marin. Okay, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fuckables? What the fuck nicks? What the fuckinucks? Yeah, that's right. What the fuckinucks? I was just up in Vancouver. This is Mark Marin. This is WTF. I'm recording this hours before the Academy Awards, so don't uh, don't uh, stick me in your head and expect some commentary on the event because this happened before the event, so I don't have that. But congratulations to the winner. You know what? I'm not even going to say that because I don't know what they're going to pick. That's ridiculous. Should I try to bet what they're going to pick? No, I'm not going to do that. We did an Oscars thing. That's behind us. Let's do a couple of uh, check-ins. First of all, thank you, Vancouver. An amazing time. Great turnout. Great meeting you all. Thank you for for all the edible and non-edible goods. Thank you, uh, a guy named Happy, who gave me the uh, quest for immortality. uh, It was a documentary based on some of the... um, the philosophies and writings of uh, Ernest Becker and how that's uh, led to a a whole new school of of uh, approaching uh, social psychology. Wow, what a, what a great documentary that was! And it was nice meeting you. And thank you for the 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 Japa dog. Is that what it's called, Japa dog? I hope that's right. And I'm not being racist or some weird weird thing. Had Japa dog. It was good. It's a hot dog with some seaweed on it, some fried uh, onions, some teriyaki sauce, and. Um, uh, wasabi mayo man and I'm not a big hot dog do- uh, guy but Jesus those were great and Vancouver beautiful city thanks for coming out that's out of the way I'm going to be in Miami Beach Florida this Thursday that's March 1st at the South Beach Comedy Festival I'll be appearing at well, one show at the Colony Theater in Miami Beach in South Beach uh, you can get tickets if you go to uh, to Ticketmaster but also if you go to the South Beach uh, Comedy Festival website so look that up anyways yeah i couldn't just look it up for you what am i a fucking idiot jesus man how about i prepare how about i just got home and you back off okay buddy but i will be at the south beach comedy festival at the colony theater march 1st 8 p.m show get tickets for that please i need your support that's a that's the wrong way to say it i'd like you to come down because my mother's coming and her boyfriend and her sister and her husband and my cousins and god knows who else and if it's not a good turnout and i just got to perform for my family and about you know maybe 50 other people it's going to be tough for her to continue thinking i'm a success at this point so if you could help me out with that i'd appreciate it and whatever you think i think about florida i love florida i just never get the feeling that i have a lot of fans there but uh you can show who you are if you come out i'll even bring merch all right after that march 8th through 10th i'll be back at acme in minneapolis thrilled about that love that club March 11th, I'll be at South by Southwest doing a one-on-one live with Jeffrey Tambor. Not sure how you get tickets for that. I think you need a pass. And March 15th, I will be at uh, Gilda's Laugh Fest in Grand Rapids doing a live WTF on the 17th uh, and a stand-up show on the 15th. That live WTF, that should be great. That's going to be with Kevin Nealon, Drew Hastings, Tommy Jonigan, uh, Alan Zweibel, and uh, maybe Jim Gaffigan. I don't know exactly uh, if he's uh, if he's coming or not. And it looks like they have their own website. That's laughfestgr.org, and uh, you can get information and tickets there. So now I do want to thank Vancouver. I love that city. I've been going up there a long time, and, and i got to be honest with you, this was the, uh, the first time in six years that I went into Canada and did not get sent to immigration for a mild interrogation and incredible time suck. Man, immigration is a time suck. I was flagged up there for no reason at all. Some of you know about that. Pow! Wow! I just shit my pants. Just coffee.coop available at WTFpod.com. So thanks to a listener in Canada who hooked me up with some people within the uh, government up there. Not in any special way. It's just I needed to get unflagged. I was flagged because I drove up into Canada. I didn't have my working paper straight. They sent me back across the border, which made me a suspect. So I remained a suspect, even though there was nothing to suspect. So somebody hooked me up with a guy at the place and I wrote the guy at the place. I said, look, I, you know, I'm clean. There's there's no reason for this to be happening. Could you could you do something about it? And sure enough, they did. And this was the first time it actually happened. I went into Canada and a, a non-suspected man, no more than any of us are in a random sort of way, but uh, walked right through. 
What an amazing experience. Thank you for that. Thank you, Vancouver, for the shows. The shows were great. The live WTF with Bob and David uh, was great. We had John Innes on there. Neil Brennan and I worked some stuff out. Josie Long from, uh, from Britain was on it from the UK. But I'll tell you, man, I don't know if I'm getting old. And this is one of the good things about getting old is that if you're able to, if you can see past, I, I don't, I don't know how you're aging, uh, what the, uh, what, what, what's, uh, what the proportion of bitterness and despair and bleakness. I, I don't know whether that's in you, but I've had that in before things are starting to shift in my heart and in my mind. I, I, I think that the success of this show is, has had a great deal to do with that. I think that the, the stand up, the quality of stand up I'm doing and the fact that people are coming out has a lot to do with that. Uh, cause I was a miserable fuck. I'm a much less miserable fuck. I guess what I'm telling you is it's interesting to know people for as long as I've known them and then actually see them change, see them get older. Like I had Bob uh, Odenkirk up there and Dave Cross, and I'm sitting there at the table with them and watching them try to remember their history, like a couple of older guys trying to put the pieces back together again and remember what was fun and what was good and how things happened. And Bob was up there with his daughter and Dave seems happy. And I actually had some sort of weird, I maybe I've been having this a lot lately, but I was just... Uh, it was just inspiring to see uh, my to see Bob Odenkirk as a dad, and it was uh, very touching to see Dave seemingly happy, uh, always a little cranky. But I, I don't know. I guess there's part of getting older that's kind of exciting, in that when you've known people for over 20 years and they're still around and uh, they seem to be getting better with age, it's a uh, it's 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 thrilling, and I'm glad I can see past myself to acknowledge that, because I got Al Yankovic on the show today. I was thinking about my my childhood. Now I don't I don't talk about it too much. I, I'm sure that many of you assume uh, that uh, there were issues and that there were problems. There there weren't that big of problems. I was not uh, beaten or or attacked or raped or or hit. Uh, that's a couple of those were the same. Uh, I I just was brought up by very selfish people, by very narcissistic people. There weren't many boundaries. Uh, there was not much discipline. There was no process uh, you know there was I, I didn't feel like I was being guided in any way and I had to do a lot of self-parenting because of that or I had to grow up too quickly or something because I'm I talked to Al Yankovic I respect what Al does and I think that uh, I talked to him a bit about how he got a lot of his fans when they were like very young and they loved him and it was a very safe way to feel rebellious and have a good time and, and see things be made fun of but I was trying to think about who I was when I was like 12 years old and as you can imagine I was a hypersensitive kid that I did not enjoy silliness ever. And I'm, I'm a little sad about that. I'm trying to enjoy it more now. I'm not so silly, but I try to appreciate silliness a little more. I mean, if I could sort of characterize myself as a 12-year-old, I mean, we're looking at what year would that have been? 63, 73, 74, 75, 12 years old. What was I doing? I was living in, the, in a shag carpeted basement that my, uh, my parents had had done for me and my brother. The bedroom of the the kid who lived next door to my grandmother, I think, changed my entire life. I was very, he had all this shit on the walls, all these posters, all these artifacts. He was very 60s oriented. He was like a bearded dude. He had Zappa posters. He had all this stuff. But I really think that that really played into the, my darkness, my brooding uh, sense of self at 12 years old. I had a picture. I had the poster from Easy Rider of Dennis Hopper flipping off the camera. I had uh, I had Mountain's second album. I had the Beatles' um, second album. I had uh, I and I had my parents. I had the Creedence Clearwater record, and I used to read Mad Magazine. So, and I was very fascinated with hippies. I was fascinated with cigarettes. I was fascinated with the possibility of drugs. I was masturbating frequently already at 12. So I had already grown up. I was in my mind. I had long hair. I had a beard and mustache. I had a mini bike, a little teeny mini bike that I used to, you know, drive around on. But I did get an Easy Rider helmet when I was like twelve or thirteen years old. So I was uh, way ahead of the game. There was no time for silliness. I was just moving towards becoming a a successful fuck up. Uh, I was looking forward to being able to smoke cigarettes and perhaps uh, you know, enjoy uh, being angry in public, wearing. Uh, uh, bell bottoms and and throwing peace signs even though that time had passed uh all of the comedy that i liked were, were darker uh or at least just gritty looking dudes that uh you know lived in nightclubs so i never i missed the whole silly thing i was denied a childhood because uh uh 60s nostalgia and the crashing wave 
of the 60s just polluted my consciousness completely. And all I was looking forward to was uh, listening to rock and roll, smoking cigarettes, and learning about secret things. So it was interesting for me to talk to Weird Al because uh, it was out of my wheelhouse, but uh, he was a, he's, a, he's a very pleasant guy. Before we get to Weird Al, let me just say that I want to thank John Hogan for letting us use music from his band, The Tokleys. Uh, that was the music on the Mark and Tom show. If you didn't hear that, the uh, myself and Tom Sharpling did a special bonus episode last week. It, uh, I, I had a great time and people seemed to like it. But it's also the music on today's show. You can listen to the Tokleys and check out John's other projects at his Tumblr page, nobodywantsthat.tumblr.com. I'm going to get silly. I need to learn how to get silly. I really do. You can get right up on these things. All right. Yeah. A radio. Hey. Per- yeah, radio <laughs> professional. I'll tell you, man, sometimes uh, I don't, uh, I'm amazed at how many people don't know how to be on a mic. Really? Well, I mean, they'll be back here and, and then they get used to being back here and then you spend the entire thing. Could you? Yeah. You know, you don't want to say like, get on it. You know, just. And then the opposite thing at the award shows where the mics can pick up like noise from like two miles away. People like. Yeah, yeah. You can hear their stomach gurgling, what they ate for lunch. So Demento. Was your guy uh, early on? I, by the way, Weird Al is my in the, mentor. Uh, actually, yeah, yes. your dementor. Uh, or, uh, Weird Al Yankovic is in the uh, Cat Ranch garage here, and you said that this looks like his place. Has his has his operation now become a home business? Well, he used to uh, broadcast live out of KMET in Los Angeles, and he was syndicated for a while. He's off terrestrial radio now, but he still does DrDemento.com, so he still does his show. It's on a subscription basis, but he, his, his uh, base of operation is very much like this. It's I, I don't think it's his garage, but it's like a little room that's just like, you know, full of books and records. He's got like a half a million records or something crazy like that. Isn't that weird, though? Because I was thinking about this, uh, about kind of I guess you would call it nerd culture, but sure. there, there are certain people in your life, because I think you're a little older than me, where like those are the guys where you'd go to their house and just going to their house, your life would change. Yeah, you'd look around and you'd be like, "Holy fuck, what what is this stuff?" Right. This- some people would say it's OCD or some kind of mental illness, but like somebody like me would go, "This is great." Exactly, because I had this experience where I went to the symphony. I never go to the symphony. Then I had this memory of uh, my grandmother's neighbor, because uh, I think some of the original nerds were classical music guys. Yeah, yeah. Because in order to have any sort of active interest in that, you had to have a lot of records. Absolutely. Oh, Doctor Demetrius. I mean, I don't know if I haven't been to his house lately, but but you know, when I would hang out at his place, literally, and this is before he was married, he would literally have rooms of his house. Like this is the seventy-eight room. Like every. Like it was like floor to ceiling, like you know, seventy RPM record. Right. Like, this is the jazz wing of the house, you know. And he, that's really that's all <laughs> he like lives. And like in his kitchen, instead of having dishes in his cupboard, it was records. And not even making this up, like records every conceivable we place. We ate in his dinner house. off of records, yeah. off and, of two great one eighty gram records. Yeah. And, and once he got married, he had to adjust a little bit right. <laughs> to that. Yeah. But. He had to get a storage space. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. This stuff has got to go somewhere else. Yes. You can keep it, but I want the kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you have any compulsive? Collectible. Well, I'm I'm just a hoarder. I w- I would have totally been on that show if if I hadn't got married. You can still be on the show. No, I, I could. Celebrity hoarder is yet to come. <laughs> that would there. be a good one. I think it'll happen. I would qualify. I mean, when I got married, my my wife uh, f- immediately threw out about seven or eight hundred of my shirts because I I hate to throw anything away. Like for, even shirts. Like I I still had like shirts uh, that I had in high school, which didn't fit me anymore. But none of them they, they fit my wife, so she right. gets to wear these cool did, retro shirts. Did they have things on them though? I mean, were like because I keep shirts that I've had for twenty twenty. 25 years but yeah. i don't wear them but there's some part of me that thinks like i gotta as you get older though i mean despite the wife i mean isn't there part of you that don't you ever sit amongst your shit and say like what's what's the point yeah i mean it, the the sense of mortality does creep in and you kind of like wonder like why are you holding on to this stuff right you know i i i have a storage locker uh which uh, I, I tweeted about this uh, a year or so ago i i had been saving like every fan letter i ever had i had literally like you know 30 or 40 boxes of, of fan letter th- that i got from the 80s and my wife was like are you ever going to read this again it's like no but i can't throw it away they're like you know love letters you yeah know? yeah people hand wrote those right. in their own scroll i have a hard time throwing i have a woman who's my fan who insists on making me mixed cassette tapes 
yeah. that hand-labeled mixed cassette tapes. I don't even think I have something I can play them on, but there's so much work involved, and yeah. there's emotion in it. You're like, it'd be like throwing away something magical. There would be a curse that would uh, that would come on you yeah. if you threw that stuff away. I, I don't understand people that have these minimalist existences. You see their beautiful modern houses, and it, there's nothing there. And I'm thinking, where are the piles? Like, yeah. I've lived in the same house for 10 years. I have never <laughs> not had piles of stuff everywhere. I, know, I don't understand it either. How does like, that happen? Where's your stuff? Yeah. Like, well, we don't keep much stuff. Well, not a book? You have one book? <laughs> what, do you read a book and throw it away? Right. I don't understand it. It annoys me. Yeah. Those people are too clean. They're I know. control freaks. I'd rather ma- I'd rather be a control freak managing a slightly chaotic empire of unread books and toys. Yeah, that this place reminds me of, of my place. I mean, I think we're like compatible spirits in that sense. I mean, somebody needs to fix us. Yeah, something has something <laughs> has to happen. I don't know why I can't let it go. And I I, I used to think like I don't know if there's a a vanity to it or a narcissism where I think like well this is important because it just really comforts me. It doesn't serve any other purpose. I like knowing it's all there. Yeah, yeah. and I feel like if I got rid of it. But also, you know, when you get rid of stuff, you know, as soon as you throw shit away, then like a week later, you're like, oh, now I need that book. Exactly. Well, that, that's the hoarder mentality that he t- talked to anybody uh, in that show and was like, I might need this someday. Like, yeah, well, yeah. Yes. But they're talking about a waffle iron. Right. That doesn't even work. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that could be useful. <laughs> sure. I mean, you might have to make waffles. There might be an emergency call for waffles. You might need to pretend to make waffles someday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, that show is so disturbing. There are certain shows I can't take in because I know that I share a common there's yeah. a, like a part of me like there's, it's just too there's vulnerable. something wrong with us definitely. yeah no definitely and and it's too vulnerable like I don't like there's some shows where I'm like oh just let them be or, or fix it you know why do we got to walk through this drama I mean some yeah. I, I don't know and I, I got it from my folks I mean when we, we cleared up my parents house a few years ago and and my dad would was he I mean he it, we took movies of it it was scary I mean he literally saved used garbage bags I mean, I mean, we cleaned out. I mean, we had. So like, you have that in your family now. Yeah, I don't know if it's passed down, if it's in the DNA or whatever. But I mean, they, they would say. I mean, they, I, I, we couldn't find a single like piece of like a, a work or, or or anything that I'd written in high school or any kind of stuff from my childhood. No childhood drawings, but we had like a hundred thousand used garbage bags. <laughs> no, was, no evidence of no, Al being but, a creative little boy. But you can use those bags again, apparently. <laughs> apparently, they used one to get rid of your stuff. <laughs> Guess so. <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, some people say it's about like uh, my my girlfriend who who is uh, works in the field of psychology um, said it's about you know sort of walling in. It's about emotional insulation, like you know you're kind of protecting yourself with this stuff. Yeah, I've never been to therapy, so you have to clue me in on how what, what it actually means. Well, I don't know. I mean, do you feel that? I, I don't really feel that because I feel like it's more of an extension of me. Like this is what defines me, not like this is what's hiding me from the world. I, I don't think of it as a shield. I mean, that that, yeah. nev- that never, maybe it is, but that never occurred to me. Do you uh, do you uh, do you have a disdain or a, a lack of uh, belief in psychology? <laughs> No, no, I, I don't. I mean, I just, uh, I, I haven't uh, had the compulsion to do it. I mean, I'm a generally happy person, and I figure, yeah, I'm sure there's things wrong with me, but I figure if you're happy, I, I don't have a need to do right. it. Right, why do we got to, you know, bring that stuff up? Right. Yeah, I seem to have repressed it just fine. <laughs> yes, my repression is working great. <laughs> yeah, <it's> a, <laughs> I'm digging this. If, if I'm in denial, it's working for me. Yes. Do you have an issue with that? <laughs> so, all right, so you, like, I didn't realize this, but uh, this is your home state. It is. And that's odd. I for some reason like cuz why I, is that odd? Well, it's odd for me only because I'm coming to you like when when you started when I was uh when my Bologna came out, I guess I, you know, I mistakenly was probably I was at the cusp of defining myself somehow. Yeah. Like, you know, I was starting to wear p- pins and buttons and I wasn't nerdy, but I I you know, I remember enjoying the thing, but for some reason I, uh, over the years, I just associated you with some Midwestern thing. I think it is the accordion. Well, it might be also Frankie Yankovic, who was America's polka king. He was based in Cleveland. Uh, but as far as I could tell, no blood relation. In fact, that's probably the reason that my parents decided to give me accordion lessons, because, like, the accordion was associated with the name Yankovic. Right. So and a lot of people just assumed I was his son or his nephew or whatever. Well, I think it was just the polka thing came from there. Right. You know, there was not, there was not polka happening yeah. in, in California. Which, which was why Dr. Domeno thought it was such a novelty when I started sitting him tapes like this kid in LA with an accordion like it did not fit the mold well, th- when you first got the accordion though wasn't there part of you I mean who were your musical heroes at that time Were weren't you a little pissed off I mean
mean, I have to be, I imagine that being saddled with an accordion or a clarinet or a bassoon, but the accordion at least has a little more range. I, I, I was too young to know any better. I mean, I was like six or seven years old when I started taking lessons, so I wasn't really into Led Zeppelin at the time. It was sort of like, you know, I was very gullible. I'm like, oh, thanks, Mom. Thanks, Dad. This will be great. I'll be the life of the party. <laughs> That's what an accordion's supposed oh, yeah, to be. You're a one-man band. Yeah. Is it, You'll never was, be lonely with an accordion. That was the pitch, it huh? Was it, yeah. But you're really fucking good at it. Well, thanks. I mean, when did you become a virtuoso accordion well, player? Well, you know, I'm not a virtuoso. I, I play competently, but I, I see like 13-year-old boys on YouTube that play better than I do, you know? Uh, Latino kids? Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but I, no, really, but seriously, there, there are a lot of, you know, I, I don't, pra- to, to be like a virtuoso, you have to be practicing 8 to 12 hours a day. It has to be your whole life, and that's not me. I don't. I rarely play the accordion when I'm not on the road, actually. I uh, I I'm, I kind of have this weird fascination and, and love of conjunto music. Uh-huh. I, love, I love Mexican conjunto music with that polka beat. Right. I love that kind of sound. I, I like it. I'm trying to remember the name of this movie. Patton Oswalt gave me a copy of, of this movie. Oh, that means only two people know about it. Right. <laughs> but it's like, a, I think it's a Colombian movie, but it's the wildest thing. It's like eight mile, but with accordion players. It's like like the accordion was like infused with the spirit of the devil. And he, this guy was like a like an insanely good accordion player. And he'd go around like, like doing basically rap battles, except with an accordion. It was <laughs> yeah. awesome. I wish I could remember the name of it. The last time I saw you, we were in uh, what, Toronto or Vancouver? Where yes. was it? Uh, yeah, the... Um, yeah, uh, no Montreal, Montreal. Okay, Montreal, and I, you know, my girlfriend's a vegetarian, and and we sought out a vegetarian restaurant, and there you were with your uh, wife and child, right, right, having vegetarian food, and uh, and again, then my entire weird, like, I have a problem when I do this show, when I interview, uh, you know, people that I only know as media personalities, I just associate you with, I don't know what I thought, but you know, when I saw you with no glasses in the uh, in the vegetarian restaurant, I'm like, oh my god, weird else, like this earthy kind of almost hippie nerd guy. <laughs> I, just, I made a, a character judgment in that. How long have you been a vegetarian? Uh, this is about 92. And what was the impulse? Um, a friend of mine gave me a book, uh, Diet for New America, the John Robbins book. And, you know, I I was already a little predisposed to it because I'd kind of given up red meat and all that. But uh, it made a really compelling argument from a, from a health and a uh, sociopolitical and an ethical reason. And it just kind of convinced me. And you okay with it? I mean, you like being a vegetarian? Yeah. You know, um, it, it gets me out, out of a lot of uh, uncomfortable situations. Like if I'm in a foreign country, they say, try our fried rice. Rattlesnake, like oh, I wish I could, but yeah. oh no, I'm vegetarian. Sorry. Here's some vegetables. Yeah, here you go. This is what we saute with the rattlesnake. I try to be a vegetarian a couple times. Just too much beans involved, too much soy involved. Yeah, I, I actually like. I, I don't. Uh, I don't miss it. I, I thought I'd really crave turkey at Thanksgiving, and I, I don't so much. I, I used to be more of a hardcore vegan, like no dairy products or eggs. Were or you an like asshole that. about it? No, no, that was the thing. I never like tried to impose my sense of like, oh, you're gonna eat that? Oh, good. You know, no, I, it was always a very personal thing. Uh, but I, I've, I've, I've kind of backed off on that. I'm still vegetarian, but I'll cheat on the the cheese a lot. My my wife used to be vegetarian, and then when she became pregnant, uh, something in her body chemistry changed. We'd be walking down the street, and she'd see a billboard for like prime rib, and she'd yeah. start salivating like. What baby needs meat? Right, baby needs meat. <laughs> <laughs> so she she's not vegetarian. She well, she's still vegetarian except she eats meat all the time. And how about so, the kid? You know, uh, my my daughter is eight years old, and we we didn't want to impose any kind of dietary thing on her because you know we we got for, like Matt Stone. Yeah. Uh, from from what I'm told, um, you know, he was raised in a household where they had to eat healthy all the time, and it was like you know, uh, literally and figuratively rammed down his throat. I mean, he was like he had to always like eat really healthy food, so he. I, I've been told that now he rebels and he just like eats garbage food all the time. And that's why we have South Park because <laughs> his parents made him eat. <laughs> but but I didn't want my daughter to like rebel against the other. I basically yeah. we we uh, she knows that you know I'm vegetarian and we try to eat healthy, but we never really. We, we try to help her make her understand. Does she like meat, though? Because some kids who were brought up by vegetarians, they they develop a, a sort of a distaste for it. Well, she used to, a, a few years ago, I mean, my, my wife brought her to some, like, Korean restaurant, uh, and, and and my daughter was like, oh, do I get to eat the eyeballs out of the fish? And, like, do I eat the... <laughs> she really? like, going nuts with it. <laughs> but now she's such an animal lover now. She's, like, the total zen nature girl animal lover, and she's kind of connected the fact that meat comes from animals, and now she's... Uh, she actually became a vegetarian just pretty much on her own. Oh. Well, that's nice. Are you going to... Are you going to uh, force an instrument on her? No, we, we she took uh, uh, some uh, piano lessons, mm. and she didn't really take to it quite so much. And I didn't want to be like you know <laughs> the dr- draconian, like you, you must. Uh, yeah, <laughs> did she did, have you given her an accordion, like a little squeeze box? She's right? got all the instruments around the house she could possibly want to mess mm-hmm. with. My my drummer gave her a little miniature drum set. We've got keyboards all over the house, and not that she's not musical, but it, her talent is more that she she's a great artist. She's actually quite a good artist. In mm-hmm. 
fact, there was a greet. Uh, there's a local uh, greeting card company that's already asked if she would do a line of uh, greeting cards because she's got like really cute little eight year old girl art. And now you have to get her an agent and a yes. lawyer, and yeah. someone's going to have to negotiate for it. <laughs> so when you were a kid, so six years old, you're straddled with this uh, accordion. I mean, was there? I mean, how did the other kids respond? Was there? Were you an ostracized kid? Um, I, I noticed uh, pretty early on that nobody wanted to be in a band with me. Right. Uh, you know, I was like, come on, it'll be great. I'm like, nah, I don't think so. But did you ever like uh, uh, impress them with your wizardry around contemporary music? Is that where the, the seeds of what you do started? That, that was more like when I entered adolescence. I mean, when I was 12, 13 years old, I would play along with uh, the, my Elton John albums and things like that. Uh, and, and my college uh, dorm, uh, you know, it was kind of cool. I brought my accordion to college and uh, I was that, that's where I got the name Weird Al because like, who does that? Yeah. But at the same time, I people were kind of like in a rock and I went one of my best friends Joel Miller played uh, I met my uh, freshman year and he'd b- bring us bongos and we'd jam out in the in the dorm room and uh, started playing the college coffee houses and that's when I first started doing doing my live uh, live appearances so when you do coffee houses though I mean at that time I can't imagine what what you know that sort of looked like because I mean you I mean I have to put you in some sort of comedically outside of you know giving you the the sort of legacy of of uh, you know of Alan Sherman and 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 Tom Lehrer and musical parody people, I mean you sort of created this own zone for yourself that that is sort of a, a you know an awkward embracing kind of like you know uh, look at me uh, kind of thing <laughs> <laughs> that that takes a lot of, a lot of courage to 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 do that. So you must have been sort of I can't imagine what. Well, playing a coffee house as Weird Al early on must have been. It, well, it, you, you stood out pretty quickly, you know, yeah. playing the accordion. Is that I, where you knew? You, were you trying to be funny? Yeah, I mean, for the, for the most part, I mean, you know, that I learned that early on is like if you if you want to be serious playing the accordion, you wind up doing a, a Italian weddings basically, right? And uh, I wanted to take it the other direction, and and you know, we we did things like I did a lot of cover versions. I did covers of Tom Lehrer songs, and, so, uh, oh, okay, things like that, and and we did a, a thing early on where I did a, a medley of every song ever written in the history of the world. So over twenty minutes, we'd segue from like the theme from the Odd Couple to two thousand and one, uh, also Sprock Zarathustra, to you know, yeah, just yeah, like yeah. do a random things. Yeah, yeah. And people were amused because this was in, in the context. Like, this is the mid-70s and a college coffee house. And for an hour, people would be getting up with their acoustic guitars doing Dan Fogelberg songs. And, you know. Yeah, the worst. <laughs> and then I come out with the accordion and bongos and we just, like, knock people over. Yeah, and they'd, they'd love it. Yeah. So who gave you the name Weird Al? Was there a person? I think there there was a guy in my uh, freshman dorms who started calling me Weird Al, and uh, and you know not not maliciously, just like man, I was I was I kind of was weird at the time, I suppose, and it just kind of stuck. And the the next year, I started doing college radio, and we needed a, a an air name to to go on the air, and yeah, Weird Al that seems to work. And what were you studying to? Uh, what was the 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 plan B? Well, uh, <laughs> at the time it was the plan A. I was getting my degree in architecture, which I actually I got. I went through all four years, got my degree, uh, and I have never used it once. You don't even use a compass or a protractor at all. No rulers. There's no. No, and that, that was back in the day before CAD. That was like the old T square days. That was. Oh, really? uh, oh yeah, that's this is ancient history. So, so. You, don't, you, you have not found yourself on rolling plans and saying this is where this is going to be. This is where it's going. You know, I, I've I've uh, 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 written out the plans for my remodeled bathroom and a few things like that, and I can still print very neatly. I've got the. Architectural oh, you do printing that you, they drill into yeah, yeah, yeah. you. Oh, you got that. Yeah, well, that's but, uh, that's not a bad thing. No, that's not worth four years of, years of college. Yeah, hell yeah. So when now were your parents like uh, sort of like I don't know, well, with this uh, music thing. You know, the cool thing about my folks is that they never pressured me at all in terms of a career because my dad, you know, my dad was like. Um, a street crossing guard. He did like, you know, whatever. We didn't live, you know, we were like lower middle class. We we had everything we needed, but we didn't have any luxuries or any aspirations. We basically were just kind of like, you know, hanging out and, you know, living yeah. our lives. And and he was always about do whatever makes you happy because that's the only true sign of success is figuring out what makes you happy and doing that for a living. So yeah. I mean, he, I, I, I know, I, and I was very, very, very grounded. It's not like I ran off to L.A. because I want to be a star. You know, yeah, you don't seem like to have that that weird menacing darkness. Yeah, that, I, uh, I don't have the compulsion to be famous or whatever. It was just sort of like I, I love music, I love comedy, and let's see if I can do this for a living. Did you listen to Zappa? Uh, absolutely, yeah. Were you a like, hero of mine? Yeah, really. So yeah. you're a Zappa guy? Sure. So you like you have all ninety records? Or, no, <laughs> or, <laughs> however many there are. <laughs> I've got quite a few though. Quite a few. And what was it about him that? Because I feel that you're you're sort of um, you're you pay a lot of attention to music. You work with very good musicians, and and you know even though you're doing something funny, you, you do it you know, you know perfectly. So there must there's a lot of attention paid to that, and I think Zappa was all about that. He no, seems very compulsive as well. I mean, you know, he a lot uh, well a, a genius musician and and very prolific. I mean, you mentioned I me; mean, he's got so many albums. Um, and 
just a really warped sense of humor. So that really attracted me to have that much musicianship and attention to detail and still be completely whacked in the head. You right, know? right. So that was sort of like a, a vessel. Like, you know, you saw that, that it was possible. Did right. you ever meet him? I did, actually. Uh, I met him when I was working in my day job at Westwood One in Culver City, like right out of college. And he was being interviewed by Dr. Demento. And I went up to him and had him sign my tattered copy of Freak Out. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and he told me at the time that uh, that his son, Dweezil, who was then 13, was a fan of Another One Rides the Bus. So he actually got my autograph oh really for I was like this is this is a, I, Frank Zappa's getting my autograph this is crazy so you were, you had that single out which was what that what your third or fourth single uh, that was that was like my second single that was like 1980 and you were still working a, a sort of weird assistant job yeah I mean because I didn't pay the rent getting airplay on the, the Dr. Demento show I mean I was working basically in the mailroom so you were working for Dr. Demento well I was working for his radio syndication company. now what what how how did that because I know there's a story behind your relationship starting I mean what, what was the evolution Evolution of that. It was basically me, me just sending him uh, unsolicited tapes in the mail. I would record uh, songs in my bedroom with my accordion on a little cassette tape, yeah. mail it in, and uh, he started playing them on the radio, and they became popular, and he invited me to the station, hang out, answer phones, so we just kind of took it from there. What kind of guy is he? He's a really cool guy. I mean, he's, you know, uh, he's also a, you know, a hoarder. He yeah. hoards records. I mean, that's, that's his, you know, uh, his whole life. I mean, uh, he's uh, really focused. He's got a, a master's degree. I'm going to get this wrong, like in, like in blues music or something like that. But he's a very uh, smart, learned guy who knows a lot he's about. He's a musicologist. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, he's very soft-spoken. He chooses his words carefully. Um, and his following was sort of weird because I, I mean, I know who he is, but again, like for me comedically, for some reason, the comics that resonated with me were always talking about, you know, dark, you know, human nature things. You yeah. Know, they, I needed comedy to resolve emotional issues. Uh -huh. <laughs> I was never one to just have a fun time. So like, it always seemed to me that there's a certain silliness that you bring to, to what you do and also to what he was sort of embracing. Right. Which was, you know, that we can have fun and we can sing and we're silly hats. Yeah. And we, the the people that like you and the people that like him, there's a, sp a specific type of, of person. You seem to be, it's not just a nerd hero, but I have to assume that most of your success when it first happened, that they were pretty young fans, weren't they? I went, when I was when I was starting, yeah, yeah. I, I would think so. I mean, the the like the fan letters that you have that you know, the, right the, the, from the eighties. I mean, they've got to be like tw you know, fifteen year olds, well, right? Yeah, half of them for, were from twelve year old boys, right? 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 <laughs> Actually, and my demographic is I think expanded, you know, over the years to the point where like now at my live shows, it's you know toddlers to geriatrics. It's a really wide demographic, but, right? Yeah, when I first started out, I, I did seem to notice it was primarily male and primarily like a really small segment. It was like like around twelve years old. And did you ever think about what it was about you know what you were doing? that appealed to them or why it like freed them or why they thought it was funny or? I didn't analyze it too much I mean I, I, I always just wrote what I think was thought was funny and back then you know I like to think my humor has matured a little bit more I mean I don't write you know so many songs about food I, I mean I had some songs on my first album which I, I can't say that I'm proud of which know? ones um, well, there's oh, there's one song called "Got a Boogie," you know, which was supposed to be a disco song, and the the big hilarious uh, uh, payoff is "Got a Boogie on My Finger and I Can't Shake It Off." Right. So I would I doubt that I would write something quite that juvenile in 2011. But when I when I was 17 years old, that was hilarious. It's just I I think like um, I, there's something about I think you're one of the like original uh, nerds having a good time. I, yeah, you know, because I, I, a lot of the stuff that I write is is fairly dark and twisted, but it doesn't come from a dark place. You know, I'm generally happy in my life, and and I've uh, it just got a kind of a offbeat sense of humor, I guess. And, and but but the, the the fact that you're shameless and peculiar <laughs> is 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 a unique thing. I could have been shameless and peculiar, Al. That was a, that was an option. I, yeah, it's not as catchy. No, but, but you know, because I think when kids feel like there's an awkwardness that, that certainly young boys go through, where they just can't fit in and they don't know, you know what I mean? They don't know how to talk to chicks, yeah. and they're you know, it's just like everything's weird. And and like to see somebody like you just sort of celebrating the weirdness. It, well, that that's the whole thing. It was like like owning the weirdness and and uh, not being afraid of it and flying the freak flag high and and uh, to kind of show all the nerds and 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 weirdos out there that it gets better yeah so you did have an agenda yeah. <laughs> and this, it's a noble agenda no thank you yeah yeah for freeing the nerds from yes. their self-bondage <laughs> who were your bet who were your guys when you were growing up and musically i mean who were the uh, outside of zappa anyway? outside zappa well a lot of people i heard on the demento show like I mean, we mentioned some of these people already tom lehrer and spike jones alan sherman stan freeberg another big hero of mine uh, shell silverstein yeah absolutely absolutely those are great songs those are great i mean and they're smart and, and yeah but you never thought about doing stand-up or just doing anything like that you know th that takes a whole different kind of mentality i mean you know um i 
you know, that's a whole different skill set. I, I probably could give it enough time and effort, but uh, it, it, I felt more comfortable with the music because it felt safer to me. Because if they if people didn't think I was funny, eh, you could you know still enjoy the music, right? And in a lot of a lot of the songs, like I, I'm familiar more with your, your song parodies, but like you know, deep uh, uh, weird Al fans know all your songs, and you wrote a lot of stuff, a lot of original music. About, about half the stuff is original, yeah. And and which one were the big hits that were original? None of them. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, no mainstream hits. I mean, the fans certainly with, with the hardcore fans, there are a lot of uh, favorites. But uh, yeah, I've never had a, a a top forty hit with an original song. And this is sort of a pet peeve because I'd like to think that you know I've been doing this for a long time and I should be able to have something that's not a direct parody of something else. But those always seem to be what people want to hear from me. Well, it's also it, it, I think that the rebelliousness of it, like, because I was trying to put it in the context of, of of how I see what comedy does, and I think that you know the to attack in a way mainstream music is important i mean do you feel that do you, i mean do you think that there's a ridiculous to a ridiculousness to you know how the music business works what's shoved down our throat right. and 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 to sort of like you know attack that on its own terms it it, it, it is very family friendly uh bit of satire and rebelliousness yeah but that, that is part of the mission statement because you know there is a lot of pretentiousness that pervades the music industry and and you know i think part of what my my job is is to kind of like let people know hey it's, it's just rock and roll it's just music like don't be so serious about it and don't be so brainwashed by it yeah that you know that just because it's a hit doesn't mean it's great and and by you know you know by taking on nirvana or even michael jackson that you can find a core of ridiculousness to the pageantry that is you know mainstream rock music which is the business of it yeah which is one of the reasons why the polka medleys work so well is because it kind of defangs every single thing because it breaks it down to like make people really listen to the lyrics yeah of these songs that they're you know, like adoring and, and idolizing and like oh oh those are the lyrics that's what i'm like <laughs> yeah so wrapped up about well that's well that's that's it's hilarious because it's just sort of like uh, because the, the music that you're putting behind is actually funner and better that people get sort of like you know hypnotized by right. the music right right and you work with such a, you know amazing musicians you've been with the same guys forever right yeah I, I got very lucky I mean you know you, how'd you meet them uh, my drummer I met actually on the Doctor Demana show on September 14th 1980 and I know that date because that was the day that we did another one rides the bus I met him like a few minutes before we actually played that song live yeah. on the Doctor Demana show yeah. and that live performance was the master tape and it still is to this day and and uh i went to college and and uh, i was hearing it was a big hit and i kept in contact with the, my drummer john bermuda schwartz and i said hey we should put we should put a band together and like do this for real and it, was there any uh, uh movement from record companies pushing you at that time not really i mean again uh you know uh, record companies publishers nobody was like really you know impressed by airplane the dr Demeno show and even if they were i mean uh, uh, what I did was considered novelty music, which is sort of derogatory in that it implies one hit wonder, like, yeah, maybe you'll have a wacky disco duck kind of hit or whatever, and then nobody will ever hear from you again. And that's that's the amazing thing is that your music, uh, you know, if it, even if it is novelty music, a lot of that stuff is sort of like kind of uh, condemned to, you know, morning radio play. Exactly, yeah. Like, you know, it's play a little bit of this. Remember right. this one? Yeah. The streak. Right. Which is why when I was sort of an outlier in that MTV started about the same time that I did, and they needed uh, material because they just started this you know 24-hour network and they didn't have a lot of music videos so my first music videos got a lot of play even though they were kind of bad but they were just they, needed you know material for the pipeline but all videos were bad but well, i mean but but you because you were satirizing i mean you you got some skills as a filmmaker right i do i developed it over the years i mean i didn't direct my first videos and i was, I was pretty green but i kind of learned on the job and did you you found did you find um like i, I know that a lot of people respect your videos so did you uh yeah, how many videos did you direct yourself? I started directing uh, in the early '90s. I, I haven't counted, but everything, uh, all the live-action videos from uh, like 1992, 93. And you did other people's videos? I, I've done a few. I, I directed for uh, the Black Crows, Hanson, Ben Folds, uh, John Sp uh, Spencer Blues Explosion, a few people like that. Really, they yeah. had they reached out to you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was great. They were they were fantastic. How are those guys doing? I wonder. I haven't heard I haven't, from them in a I while. Ran into, I ran to Russell Simmons uh, at a some at a, uh, a rehearsal hall about a year ago. I, I don't know. It's interesting. Like I always like it, it always saddens me when I see the way the music business works because if you look at the Black Crows, you know that you know John Spencer Blues Explosion was really doing that kind of hot rotted you know modern blues right. before they were, and they didn't really kind of like get the the full arc of. Uh, 
the young girls loving them. You, know, you never know what's gonna what's gonna pop. But yeah, they were amazing, and they were just so fun to work with. Uh, uh, shooting a video with them. I, I what's never... the other guy's name? Judah Bauer. Is that the? Uh, the believe, yeah, 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 yeah. He's right. good. He's yeah. good. Yeah, I've I've, uh, I've hung out with those guys once or twice. Do you uh, do you have any contempt towards the music business in general? No, no. no. I mean, more of sadness. <laughs> That's sort of like a, a, like a, like a, a chronic sadness, yeah. just a, a light vibration. Well, well, mostly because there is no music business anymore. It's like very quickly just dissolving. It's it's vanishing. Yeah, it's a uh, man. I mean, um, I, I I should start probably stop complaining because uh, I, I I complained once that my new album, even though it's my highest charting album, is one of my worst selling albums because people just are not buying albums anymore. Is it the live one? Uh, no, it's it's uh, Alpocalypse. Which oh, yeah. I mean, it's a top ten out. It's my biggest charting album. I just watched, is that It's from this. I just watched yes, the, the DVD, right. but that's a live performance. That right? is a live performance. Yeah. But the live shows. When did you start amplifying the live shows to such amazing spectacles? Was it always like that? Well, it, it kind of grew o- uh, over the years. I mean, it's, it's become a big multimedia thing. When I first started out, it was basically just me and my band on stage playing live, uh, and then we started. In, in court, I think the first thing we did was uh, my my first uh, single after I got signed to a record deal yeah. was Ricky, uh, which was me doing a as Ricky Ricardo doing a duet with a woman doing that, yeah. Lu- Lucille Ball. Is that the first time you shaved your mustache off? And for a long time, yeah. Um, and we couldn't really perform that live because we weren't traveling with a woman who did the voice of Lucille Ball. So we had to basically play our music video on an 8mm projector on a screen on stage. Right. Uh, and that was the start of it. Then the next year was Eat It, and I had to bring out the zippered Eat It jacket. And over the years, it just became more and more about costumes and, and, and production value. It's like, a theme, it's like an amusement park for Kinda. people now. I, I've got more costume changes than Lady Gaga at this point. It's, it's pretty yeah. crazy. And do now, and that's the other thing about the, the kind of eternal flame of, of what your craft does is that you know if there's somebody to attack you can attack them I mean in right. your way yes so you're always bringing in a new uh, a new uh, uh, kind of a ship full of uh, 15 year old boys <laughs> who are like fuck Lady Gaga Weird Al's fun well it's kind of I mean I my, my albums are sort of like, every album's a comeback because I go a few years between albums and every time I put out an album it's like a new generation discovers me which is cool like there's a whole new crop of 15 year olds that go oh Alpocalypse oh oh he's got other albums too and oh, then like and you know they go back and then the whole catalog starts selling again you see that happen oh yeah, absolutely yeah and now what what does the audience look like at a Weird Al show now um they're all Japanese I oh know, interesting no um that means something you're big in japan it means it's over here and you can retire yeah. in japan no i mean like i said I mean, it's it's a very diverse audience demographically at least i mean it's like you know you got your teenage you get your college age what is the male to female ratio in general it's probably slightly more male but yeah. not not like it was in, in the 80s i mean it really is uh it's, it's it's become a real family thing because uh you know my, my humor is you know it's even though it's a little twisted it's, it's pretty clean so you can feel fairly safe bringing your family to it and as a result like parents and grandparents and kids all you know come along together and they all enjoy the show on a different level that's amazing i mean i can't i can't even imagine that like if i go into a room uh, to, to perform comedy i see kids i'm like oh that, i'm yeah. gonna change their life <laughs> this, is, this is gonna be Someone made a mistake <laughs> right, here, right? But you never have to feel that. No. Oh, that's sweet. It's you're a sweet guy. <laughs> Look at that. Well, thanks, Mark. Yeah. When now? When did you get LASIK surgery? I have to assume. Oh, uh, 1998. And it working? You love it? You know, I, I do. You know, my eyes continue to change, so uh, I still wear a very low prescription glasses uh, when I'm driving or when I go to the movies. But I, in general, you see, the thing is, with, with these glasses, I, I see better from like 10 feet to infinity, but within 10 feet, I see better without the glasses, so... And, and like, because I can't, like, I, I, I'm scared of it, and you weren't scared of it, or you were for a long time? Well, it was a little scary because, I mean, especially back when I did it, I mean, I think it's even better now. They don't literally have to cut your eyeball, from what I understand, but when I did, when I went, they, they did. And they do this whole two-hour uh, orientation where they tell you exactly what they're going to do. Uh, I mean, and it was kind of scary because they say, at this point, we're going to numb you, and then we're going to slice the top of your eyeball, peel it back, and, yeah. and you're thinking, oh, that yeah. doesn't sound pleasant at all. No, it doesn't sound like and, and I got to tell you the story just because um, it, it was the weirdest thing because I, I knew that they were peeling back the top of my eyeball to do this laser surgery. And they did it on live television, by the way, because this is the cheap side of me. I, they told me they'd do it for free if they let Channel 11 cover it on the uh, on the daytime news. So Weird Al getting his eyeball peeled back. Live on television. Isn't that like a cup of liquid, though? I mean, isn't there liquid in there that could come out? Like o- o- ocular fluid? I, or? I junk? I don't know. I, I, I assumed that they knew what they were doing, so I was just kind of trusting just let it, You them. rolled with it? Yeah. Okay, so but, what but happened? After the operation, you know, the operation went fine, uh, and I could immediately read the whole eye chart. It was amazing. But I'm sitting there in the uh, the waiting room waiting for my ride to, to pick me up and drive me home because you're not supposed to, you know, drive because you just had eye surgery. 
And I was reading a magazine or something and I blinked and what they didn't tell me was that after the surgery, they put a soft contact lens on your eyes to kind of protect the scar. Oh. They didn't tell me that. But so with, I, with no power to it. No, no, no. Oh, just, okay. just, so just a protect, right. yeah. It was a protective thing. Yeah. And um, so I blinked and this co- contact lens <laughs> <laughs> pops out of my eye and lands on my cheek. And I flip out. Of, ah, my cornea. My cornea fell out. Ah! And people are running in. <laughs> They're like, oh, no, it's a contact lens. Like, <laughs> I was freaking. I thought my eye was falling apart. Weird out my freaks face. out. Yeah. Oh, shit. Where's that song? I know. <laughs> That's a horrible fucking story. Because that that moment of fear, when you have real fear, it's yeah. awful. Because yeah. you just don't know what's going to come right, out of Right, right, right. <laughs> when your eye is on your cheek, yeah, like, what, do you do? Like, what do you do? What do you do? You were still in the doctor's office. I'm going to need that. That's my eyeball. <laughs> but you're still in the doctor's office? Yeah, yeah. I'm in the waiting room. People are looking at me like, what? <laughs> Did they get that on the, uh, the daytime no, no, TV? No, no. They were gone. The cameras were packed up by that point. Now, I I have to, like, uh, like what what's happened... For uh, culturally, it has to be uh, amazingly um, exciting for you that the, the, the culture has seemed to turn a corner towards Weird Al land. Like, I mean, culturally, uh, the nerd paradigm seems to be somewhat dominant in, in youth culture. And I have to assume uh, that recently you've, you've there's sort of an, a rebirth of what you do. Did Have you felt that? You know, I, yeah. Uh, and it was I have to say it wasn't calculated at all. It wasn't no, like, you no. know, I mean, because I've been, you know, a hardcore nerd, you know, from the beginning. But I, I did seem to notice. Uh, when I did White and Nerdy, which was like five years ago, uh, that seemed to be riding the crest of, of of nerd culture at the time. I mean, it was like it was really in in uh, everywhere you looked, and uh, it, it really was you know part of the zeitgeist at that point. And yet again, that wasn't something that I was consciously trying to tap into it, but it, it just really you know was fortuitous that it all happened at the same time. Well, yeah, because I talked to a lot of guys in here, you know, dudes like Tom Lennon, uh, Chris Hardwick, uh, my partner who I work with were huge Weird Al fans when they were kids and did they do you feel like you've been embraced or, or welcomed back in or, or do you have a sense of like oh, it's, I'm a veteran I'm the I'm a legend it, it's weird it's like you know I'm a novelty dinosaur you know and and for somebody that wasn't really supposed to have a career at all it's kind of nice that I've been able to hang around for as long as I have and and if I've had any, any kind of influence or inspiration for like you know the, the younger I hate to call them the younger comics but I mean for the you know uh, um, people that came after me uh, I mean that that's amazing to me. Do you see anybody doing what you're doing, though? I don't see anybody doing it. Well, on YouTube, there's 100 million people, you know, doing <laughs> song parodies. But, I mean, probably not the, at the level that I've been doing it. And, and what do you think the, the, the difference is in terms of, of why you were able to be, you know, so uh, successful at it? Yeah, I know. You know. It's a lot of hard work and, and surrounding myself with very talented people. I've, you know, we talked about my band. I mean, they're amazing, and it's, that's been great to have. And uh, and uh, just just tenacity. I mean, I just you know, I just don't give up. And do you do you guys ever just jam? Do you ever like? Do you are there other musicians you hang out with? Like, who are some of the people that in your career have surprised you when they've come up and said, "I love what you do." Yeah, it really uh, surprised me the people that have said that they're fans. I mean, I've I become friends with uh, uh, people like like Ben Folds, and you know, I get to, got to direct his video as well, and. Uh, um, um, and just people that even who knew I existed. I mean, in 1984, when I first started out, I met Paul McCartney at, at a Get the fuck at out a party. Of and you know, I I just don't eat it. I mean, I was just like you know, just starting out. And I weaseled my way up to, to him in this party because I just thought, oh, this is my chance to meet a Beatle. And he knew who I was. He turned to Linda and said, "Honey, it's Weird Al." I'm like, what? <laughs> No, my brain cannot handle this. It was, was crazy. There, but when you approach those situations, was there was there any sense of like you know like well, I just do these funny songs? You're a Beatle, or were you just sort of like, hey, I'm here? Well, I, I didn't even want. I didn't think he'd know who I was. I just thought I was like some guy at the party, like just I just want to let you know that I love you. And, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he and but, you, but he knew who I was, and he was like, and then people are taking pictures of us together, and it's like this is the best day of my life. Were you ever? Did you get to talk to him, or was it for like a minute? I mean, he was. It was like at the uh, the, the uh, party for his movie, Give My Regards to Broad Street. So he was very busy and, and being involved with a lot of other people but uh i got to talk you know i, I actually got to direct paul mccartney a couple years ago uh in a short film called weird al's brain in 3d it was like a theme attraction for the orange county fair yeah and he was nice enough to to uh, uh at, at coachella he made a few minutes for me to film him doing a little bit for the movie so i can now say if if i do nothing else in life i have directed paul mccartney well that's great was he uh, your favorite beetle i'd have to say so yeah, yeah you're yeah. not a lennon guy see i'm a lennon guy see yeah. that's a fundamental difference between well, us. <laughs> 
I love them all, but you know, I, I have to defer to Paul. When when it comes to technology and this stuff that because you, you seem to be working on a lot of platforms. Yes, there's many platforms. That, <laughs> like I mean, whose idea Gotta was move the units? Yeah, move the units anyway. It's getting tricky to move the units now. Yes, because people get so many units for nothing <laughs> if you're not careful. And yes, how do you protect your units? I, you know, I, I don't worry about my units. <laughs> oh, good. People can abuse my units if they want to. Oh, Al's open to unit abuse. I knew it. <laughs> Uh, but do you? How savvy are you with that stuff? And how much, like you know, something like that uh, Orange County uh, Fair thing? Does, is that uh, your brainchild, or were you approached for something like that? Um, that was something that the uh, the CEO of the fair wanted to do something with because they always did very well with me. The Orange County Fair, they'd sell out, have huge record breaking crowds, and they said we want to do the next, take it to the next step. And my manager and I brainstormed the idea of doing this Al's Brain Pavilion, where it's like a three D movie, and you learn about the hum- human brain. So it was just, that was just like a n- nice, fun project that we did. So it was educational. Yeah, it was and educational fun. and fun, and I got to have Tom Lennon. And Patton and uh, Tim and Eric and, and Paul McCartney and my mother-in-law all <laughs> making cameo appearances in this cool little video. Now, do you uh, are you friends with Tim and Eric in an active way? Yeah, I mean, I don't see them all the time, but you know, we, we stay in touch. What do you think of what they do? I love what they do. I I, uh, I actually asked to be on a... What, what happened was uh, I, I saw an interview with... Um, uh, Tim and Eric, where they were talking about, and this was back when they were doing Tom Goes to the Mayor, and they were saying, like, we, we don't get a lot of celebrities on the show because, like, you know, they don't ask. Like, what, you have to ask? Well, I'll ask, sure. I'd like to be on the show. And I approached Bob Odenkirk, who's sort of their yeah. mentor, and uh, said, yeah, if Tim and Eric ever want to have me in any of their things, let me know. And and they said, we, we got this new character called U- Uncle Muscles, and, and uh, if you're interested, and I said, whatever it is, I'm, I'm there. So, And I'm, I'm amazed a lot of people recognize me from the Tim and Eric show. And uh, people either love the show or hate the show. There's no middle ground with them. It's like, well, I, you know, I sort of they don't they won't come on the show because they they don't like talking. They, I think they're tired of talking about their process and 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 uh, because it's so unique. Uh-huh. And, and uh, how do you question that? I mean, with with Tim and Eric, you're sort of like, where does this come from? But uh, where do your ideas come from? Right. Like, I mean, how do you I, answer that? The the weird thing about it, and it's sort of similar with Zappa, and sort of similar with people who do this kind of. They create a universe, and and somehow or another, it's just working. And it seems to you know automatically reference the history of television, the history of weirdness, you know, commercial culture uh, and freak culture, all in, in in just it's effortless. And 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 the truth of the matter is, I can't imagine that they're thinking about you know keep, you know you know creating all these layers intellectually. It just happens because of their humor, right? But. I, I, you have to fucking respect it because you're watching something that it, it's not going to happen anywhere else. No, <laughs> and and it's not necessarily about big laughs or anything. It's almost it, it has, uh, it, it goes deeper, and you're not you can't even figure out where it's going. Right, but it has an effect on you if you've been alive and watched television at any point in your life. Yeah. So uh, now the touring thing now. When you travel, you, would you, you would you bring a, a full? Uh, is there a full truck of costumes? Oh yes, it's it's a traveling circus, man. It's, we got a, a couple buses and a couple trucks, um, which is one of the reasons why it's hard for us to tour outside of North America because you know if you're flying the fat suit uh, and the computer servers overseas, <laughs> how do you I mean, do that so quickly uh, in terms of costume changes with the fat suit? Because it doesn't have to be molded into your skin, or you've got to. Well, f- when they do it for the video, it's like a four-hour process. But for the live show, uh, it's it's this a little bit man behind the curtain here, uh, rooting the magic for. You, but basically, let's ruin some magic. Okay, it's uh, it's latex appliances that are attached to the glasses that I wear, and there's a Velcro strip in the back, so I can change uh, into the fat suit in about a minute and a half. So now, was there a, a table kind of uh, almost a corporate discussion about how we're gonna, how are we going to do this? Let's plan this out. Did you have to sit and figure out a system? Did you have to like practice it in front of a few well, for, other people for the fat suit in particular? Or, yeah, um, for the, yeah, for the fat suit in particular. I, I mean, well, um, we had to figure out a way to do it because when, when I when I wrote the song, and we did the video. We never thought, now how are we going to do this live on stage? So we had to basically go to a special effects house. Uh, Kevin Yeager uh, designed the fat suit, and he also designed the, uh, the the mask that I wear. And he's an amazing, amazing guy. So is it, so most of the it, that's like in terms of units. The one thing that the the one unit they can't take away from you is live performing, and that's really become I think interesting to me is that merchandise and live performing is really a big part of the business. That's right? a huge. Uh, well, that is that is the business now. I mean, uh, I I often say that in, you know when I started out, you would basically uh, play live to sell records, and now it's you 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 know make records so that you can play live. 
And you do uh, do you, do. All right, how accessible are you after a show? Do you uh, go out and say hi? And I do, but not always. And I, I you shouldn't feel entitled to for a personal visit with me if you go to a show. But because uh, I don't do usually a meet and greet after casinos or fairs or if basically I, I'm sick or have something I have to be doing. But whenever I can, I do have a, do a meet and greet after the show. It's weird because there's not much condescension to your spirit. I mean, because you know you speak about you know playing state fairs and 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 I think for most performers the idea of playing a state fair would be horrendous you know uh it's not a hip gig but it's it's a great gig i mean you know it's it's some of the biggest shows i've ever played have been at, at state fairs i mean it's like woodstock sometimes they'd be literally fifteen thousand people you can't see the end of the crowd and they're all having a great time and it pays well and you have to smell corn dogs while you're playing but other than that i mean it's pretty cool and it's family yeah i i, I find that completely commendable and I, it almost makes me uncomfortable because i think that you know i don't know if i'm a snob but I certainly operate in a world of show business that is that is specific, and uh, and I don't have a family, and uh, I never really considered. I don't even know that I considered myself an entertainer for the first ten years of my career. <laughs> really? Yeah, it's like you know, the the idea that like you know I'm a comedian, I got things to say. It wasn't like you know I'm here to make people happy. Yeah, I'm bringing joy to the world. Uh, no, I'm working some shit out. <laughs> But I think that from <laughs> from the very yeah, from your very nature, from your very core, that you you seem to want to uh, provide a good time for all ages. Oh, yeah, that's kind of what I'm trying to do. <laughs> that's my job description. Yeah, I mean, there there's some songs that you know I, I play maybe not because it's my favorite song, but it's because like oh, this will make people happy, and it doesn't bother you. You're not like here yeah. we go, let's play eat it again. Well, that's fellas. The thing. I mean, you know, I, I've literally played some of my songs over a thousand times on stage, but it doesn't really get old because as long as people are you know having a good time, I mean, you know, I'll tell you, those things got to be tight now, though, Al. Oh, I tell. <laughs> but you know, the odd thing is, I will still forget words, even like you know, thirty years later, like I'll be in the middle of Yoda and think, what's the next line? And that's a very Yoda thing to think. It is <laughs> line. What's next? Next line, right? Get the syntax right. <laughs> do you do Japan and that kind of stuff? We've never done a full-on tour of Japan. The last time I played Japan was, well, not even played Japan. I was there in 1984 when Eat It was a big hit. And uh, I, I think YouTube might have just yanked this off of my account. But there, look look on, online. There's it's Weird Al in Japan, 1984. It's one of the most surrealistic experiences of my life. I was on this TV show. I don't remember the name of it, but it was they, they billed it as the Saturday Night Live of Japan. <laughs> and I was there singing <laughs> Eat It phonetically in half English, half Japanese, yeah. Uh, and while I'm singing, there's a, a chorus line of dancing uh, sumo wrestlers. There's a guy that gets wheeled out on a gurney in a giant lobster outfit and he demands that I eat him. Really? It, <laughs> it was very lost in translation. When I saw that movie, I thought, oh, yeah, I'm Bill Murray here. Well, yeah, Saturday yeah, Night Live is very not, different this there. This does not compute at but, all. But because of the nature of popular music and, and the global sort of range of it, I mean, you, you probably you draw everywhere. I mean, it's, it's not like people are going to go, like, it's too American or it's too, uh, we don't get it. I mean, those songs are everywhere. Well, that's nice about the internet because you know, never, no longer have to be, uh, um, uh, it doesn't matter if, if your uh, product is actually in the stores and, and uh, Uganda because, you know, they can hear you, uh, you know, on the internet there. Uh, so I've got pockets of fans uh, in parts of the world that I didn't even know existed, you know. And and when, you, you're you not married that long, right? About 10 years. And it, so you got married later in life. Yeah. What what, uh, what kind of, um, like, what kind of groupies does Al Yankovic have? You know, I've I, I bulk erased that entire part of my memory. Have uh, you really? No. <laughs> Well, I mean, seriously. I, I dated for a while. I mean, you know, uh, I, I didn't get groupies per se. I mean, I, I uh, you know, I, I, I did date fans because, you know, that's a nice place to start. No, I, People I, that I, actually like you. I you married know? a fan and that didn't <laughs> right. work out. And now I'm dating oh, a fan. Sorry, sorry. What's in place there is they have a very deep understanding that may not have anything to do with you of you. Yeah. A fan. Like, I know you. Yeah. yeah. No, oh, you dude. perhaps don't. <laughs> <laughs> you perhaps don't. And then you try to shake the idea they have of you, and then, no, no, yeah, that's not no. the Al. I, uh, uh-uh. You're not the, I've yeah. got a different Al in my brain. Yeah, 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 I'm, I'm honoring that Al in yeah. my mind. <laughs> so you better become him. Yes. Yeah, they're hard to get Transition, out. Transition, yeah. Yeah, they're hard to get out of the house. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but like in general, have you had uh, stalkery, groupy kind of? Not, well, I, I had a, gosh, I should, probably shouldn't even be talking about it, but I, I had, um, 
a stalker that lived uh, in a, a different part of the country that would send me a creepy letter every single day. And the letters would sometimes get to be 30, 40 pages long, handwritten. A woman? Yeah, a woman, yeah. And and it was it was obviously the only thing she did in her life was write me letters. Oh. And, uh, you know, on the back it said, this is letter number 712. Why haven't you written back yet? Oh, my God. That kind of thing, you know. And did they just trickle away or was there legal after, action? Uh, no, after a while they just stopped, you know. Were you saddened by that? Did I you was like, you... where's my stalker? <laughs> was there a moment where you're like, What's I... wrong? what did I do? Is there something? <laughs> I said? You can tell me. Yeah, I hope she's okay. Oh, it's the it kind of thing. It was very Charlie Madison. It was like, yeah. when you said this, when you put this lyric into your music, was that a direct message to me? Oh, so you, she, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, man, that's always uh, a little jarring to have yeah. the, uh, the, the the fan stalker that you know is in her own world. And right. You just but, can't. But, but luckily, she didn't live in L.A. and she didn't have any money. So it's not like I'd be worried that she'd be behind me in line at the supermarket. And you never engaged. No, 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 no. You knew better. Yeah. Do you ever engage in chat boards or anything? No, not really. I mean, I, I read pretty much every at mention on Twitter. I, I try to, like, be aware of what fans are saying, but I, I, I don't usually uh, involve myself because then it's, then it's a slippery slope. Then it's like, well, you, you responded to that person. Why don't you respond to me? Yeah, fuck you. And then that's only four tweets away from, oh, Yankovic's a douchebag. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then that guy gets traction with his tweet. What did L do? And yeah. it's out of your hands. So I just remain this omniscient being just looking down. <laughs> that's good. That's, that's probably better off. Yeah. So, I mean, there, you have had like tragedy in your life recently, and I know it was fairly public. And how, how do you sort of, with your parents, how do you bounce back from that? Um, it's a slow process. I mean, you know, my parents passed away five years, was yeah, 2004, so uh, seven years ago. This was not that recent. But, and it was you know, like a, a horrible situation. I mean, what happened? Oh gosh, we're going there. Um, it's you know, it was um, it, it's always hard for me to like re- relive my parents' death because yeah, well, it was like the singular most traumatic thing that ever happened to me, and, yeah. and it, I still feel the pain to this day. The shackles yeah. worn off for the most part, right? But, you know, it's, it's a pain that I still carry with yeah. me, and I was on the road, and and I got uh, a phone call from my wife you know, in tears, telling me, and I, I thought at the time, you know, she called up in tears, and I thought, oh, our bird died. Oh, yeah, this is yeah. horrible. Right. And it turned out uh, my parents uh, both uh, had passed away because of. Um, uh, the flu being closed in their house, and they had uh, the, the fireplace going, so they 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 both died from carbon monoxide poisoning. Oh my god! And it was and it was obviously horrible, and and uh, I, I I could barely function, but I, I figured I had the responsibility. I had a show that night. I was in the middle of the tour. I had like a, a small army of people depending on me, so I kind of put my blinders on and I went into denial mode, and I basically went on stage every single night. Did the full show, acted like everything was just fine. Yeah. But after afterwards, no meet and greets, no nothing. I just I just went and collapsed and just was a sobbing mess. It was just. Wow. It was, but I mean, in a way, it kind of got me through it because I needed denial at that point because it was just too much for me to accept. Yeah, I, uh, I can't imagine. And uh, I, I was able to kind of like you know put you know for a couple hours every night to have just a, a break from the horror of my situation. Yeah, and over and over time, uh, that's amazing that you're able to do the shows. Yeah. And were you able to just walk in and like you know, tunnel vision and just go? Well, I tried to, but every every now and then I'd have a lyric talking about my mother or whatever and then I'd be like, "Oh, it was just oh like it God. all it was I can't and, imagine. Yeah, it was horrible. And you don't really and it's interesting cuz in in stand up or there's no way for you to necessarily creatively process that. You know, you you just it, it, because it's not what you do. Yeah. But the outlet of just being able to do the show yeah. got you away from it. And you know, I, I've heard from so many people over the years that my music has gotten them through a very hard, you know, dry right. time of their life. I thought, well, maybe it'll do the same for me. And in a way, it did. And, and here's the thing: I, I never wanted. I, I always knew uh, intellectually that someday my parents were going to pass away and right. I have to deal with it. But I never thought it would be like out of the blue and at the same time. Yeah. You know, and and um, too much. And Mind also, blowing. also, I, I thought it would. I'd be able to deal with my grief very privately. Right. But instead, it became like a worldwide news story. You know, I, I didn't want people walking on eggshells around me. I didn't want uh, people treating me differently. And I, mean, I was doing a comedy show every night. I didn't want people, like, going there and feeling sorry for me, you so know? Do, so the, literally the news broke, and, and the the following couple of shows, everyone knew. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think the first night, the only people that knew were... I don't even know if my crew knew. I think maybe the, the guys in my band knew. But then it became, like, a, a headline on CNN. So at that point, like everybody knew and did you find that like when you walked out on stage you were like mm. 
Actually, no. I mean, I, I did a we, we had a, um, a slide that we showed before the, the show started saying that uh, tonight's performance is in honor of my parents. Uh-huh. And it was sort of like you know, dealing with the 800 pound gorilla and like getting it out there. And at that point, we did the show as normal. And and the outpouring of support from the fans was just unbelievable. I mean, I, 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 I didn't ever think I'd want to share my grief with people, but it really was cathartic. And it was nice to ha- knew that people had my back. That's uh, that's a, that's very powerful, you know, and, and it's very sweet you know that you have that you were able to have that yeah that the honesty whether you wanted it to be there or not about the tragedy was out and these people were were caring and that's yeah. that's, that's beautiful well i'm sorry that happened but yeah it, it sounds like you you know really dealt with it thank you um did you find yourself like pissed off at, at news you know organizations i mean well, isn't it weird to be a public personality yeah i mean it, it, I, the the thing i was most upset was was they couldn't wait for us i mean you know the, the, everybody like so what's your statement like my statement like what do you th- how do you think i'm feeling you know <laughs> what you, what, and, and, and they they couldn't wait because it's in the news cycle so it's like they talked to uh our my parents neighbors and fallbrook which they barely even knew and like so what do you think about this and like they're getting all their information from people that didn't know anything fuck, and, and all this informa- misinformation is out there yeah I hear all those relatives live together in a commune like what yeah, really and like, everything was wrong and finally I had to put a, like an official statement on my website just basically correcting all the misinformation and kind of just putting it out there and and uh, and that was good to do too, but it just kind of it, it was upsetting to me that they couldn't wait like forty eight hours for me to process my grief to the point where I could like you know have a cohesive thought. It's fucking it's it's so unbelievable to me that the kind of like um, predatory nature yeah. of of a news cycle that like they they have so little and there's so much airtime to fill that they have no respect for personal boundaries right. even around something that's right. that that's tragic and should be handled delicately and just because you're a celebrity they're just like yeah. Yeah, yeah, let's go into the house. Yeah, well, I'm sorry you had to go through that. So, what is the uh, what's the tour schedule now? Uh, I'm done. We just started talking about general periods of time. I'm probably not going out on the road until sometime Aprilish at this point. Are there new songs in the making? Not right now, but I mean, you know, that's several months away. So I'll probably start working on the next album. Do you keep like? How do you like? What do you do? I mean, do you force yourself to to assess and listen to popular music for for hooks or for 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 what what is it that attracts you to a song outside of the cultural celebrity or the or the or the popularity? It, it's hard to define. I mean, you know, a, a song that uh, is a good candidate for parody generally it will have some kind of uh, hook or or something right. that makes it jump out. Uh, but I, I I generally look at what's been like number one on the Billboard charts and. And try to figure out any variations on a theme, and and it's more about that, uh, you know, the the mainstream popularity, and and can I think of an idea for it? Because there's a lot of songs that would be good candidates, but I, it feels like a force, right? So it has to be organic, and you have to right. you know, engage in that. Which which is why it's nice that I only put out albums every few years, because I mean, some people there are some parody writers that like work for radio syndication services, and they have to crank out a parody like three times a week, and that kind of will water down your creativity. Yeah, and it, it, but see that also speaks to how the amazing musicianship of what you do, because those things are such shit and you can hear that they're just ripping off the directly <laughs> ripping off the licks and you, yeah. you know and, and that there's no real process to it but with technology people can churn out shit so quickly what what do you listen to now i mean like if you're like in your car um i'll just turn on uh well the local la radio station i you listen do that to. too I, yeah, yeah I do, like i listen to like public radio usually i don't like if i'm on my ipod someone just gave me um the vinyl reissue of john coltrane's giant step on on like these 180 gram i'm not a vinyl freak, right, right. but this, the guy's like this is 180 gram vinyl oh. 45 rpm it's the way it's supposed to be heard and i'm like okay <laughs> all right but then like yeah, i put I'll it, rip an mp3 from it yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no but then you put it on and you just see it spinning and you're like wow this is the way it's supposed to be heard i listen to all my music on edison wax cylinders that's yeah, the yeah. only thing anything else is a sellout that i hand crank holding a right. stopwatch <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> You're not a vinyl guy, though. Yeah, you know, I I appreciate vinyl, and I, I'm not an audiophile. I think my ears have been deadened to the point where point where I can't really hear, you know, those kind of like really minute improvements in yeah, sound yeah. quality. So I, I prefer not to hear pops and ticks and, and surface noise. So yeah, I, I I did not really. The only thing I miss about the LPs is the is the, uh, the covers because oh, I, yeah, I like the, the artwork. Yeah, yeah. You, you miss people being able to clean pot on right. your on the Weird Al cover <laughs> on the first Weird Al album. Oh yes, yeah. memories. Yeah. <laughs> So 
so what is your particular nerdism? I mean, what what are you obsessed with in general? Oh, um, I, I I don't have any like hobbies so much outside of my career. I mean, it's, no, it's, really? I'm, I I surf the internet more than a healthy person should. Yeah, uh, I just love knowing what's going on. Twitter's a big uh, vice of mine, and oh, isn't uh, it amazing. And other than that, just g- generic like you know music and comedy stuff. Did you tweet that you were coming over here? I didn't, but when this is a uh, live, I, I would. Uh, you know, I think you should uh, maybe wait until we put it up. That was my plan. That you know, you're you're one of the smart ones, Ed, because there's a little <laughs> bit of a you know, I got a pipeline here, and then like what happens is I become the asshole. You oh. tweet it. Just got back from errands, and then for the next month, people are like, "When's Weird Al?" Right, right. You said Weird Al is coming. I, I, a lot of people are tweeting like, "Well, yo, when are you going to do uh, Mark's podcast?" It's like, going to happen. I've been telling people it's going to happen, and now it happened. There, here you go. I think it went good. We you we good? Well, I think we're good, probably. Well, thanks, Al. Thanks for coming. (laughs) My pleasure. That's it. That's the end of our show, Boomer. People want to know if you're a cat or something I'm making up or my producer. Boomy. Boomy. God damn it, man. I think he likes Jessica better than me. I, I think that I've lost a cat. Thank you for listening. That's our show. I appreciate you listening to the W to the WTF. Go to WTFPod.com for all your WTF Pod needs. You can get merchandise there. You can kick in a few shekels. You can get information on all the apps. I've got the episode guide so you know who has been on the show and how you can get that episode. You know, the premium app is only a few bucks, and uh, it'll get you access on a streaming level to every episode we've ever done. We're eagerly awaiting our DVDs with the first 100 episodes. And Just Coffee at uh, WTFPod.com, JustCoffee.coop. Oh, I already did that. I'm not going to do it again. Please come see me in Miami on Thursday, March 1st at the Colony Theater. Please don't leave me alone with my mother.